0: Show with our special guest star Say hello to my little friend Hi hey everyone, welcome to episode number 17 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, also known as the Beretta Cast. This week, this week the world marks the birthday of one of my all-time favorite entertainers, Jim Henson. The late, great Jim Henson. Whether he likes it or not, and let's face it, he doesn't have much choice, this episode is dedicated to him. And now, a word from, not really our sponsors, but at least a word anyway. And then we'll get on with today's episode.
1: Free your mind. Hello, this is Dee Dee Warren of the Preterist Podcast. And I free my mind by listening to Say Hello to My Little Friend with Glenn Peoples. Even when I have no idea what he is talking about, the cool accent still rocks. So keep listening to this podcast and expand your mind. Because your butt should never be bigger than your brain. Wait, that's like metaphorically speaking. Because literally, I think everyone's butt is spatially bigger than their brain, except maybe Steve Jobs. So I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that you should feed your brain more than you feed your butt. Um. Well, anyways, just listen to this podcast on iTunes or at www.beretta-online.com. One zero one.
0: Intelligent design is the subject for this episode. It's a viewpoint you may know something about already. It's associated with names like Michael Behe, Philip Johnson, uh, Michael Denton, William Dembski, and others. It's, and this is a very simple nutshell just to get the ball rolling, it's the view that existing life on planet Earth, especially at the biochemical level, the cellular level, has a degree of complexity, irreducible complexity, such that it cannot have come about by unintelligent forces and having no other mechanism than natural selection to get it where it is now. Irreducible complexity means that the complex organization of systems, take for example a cellular flagellum, has to be the way it is now in order to work at all. And any previous form lacking any of the features that the system has now would not have been a viable form. It would not have worked, and so would not allow survival in order to evolve into the form that now exists. And so there must, so the argument goes, have been an intelligence involved at some level to bring about the life that now exists. I realize that's a grotesque simplification, but that's It gets you started in the right direction and understanding what the viewpoint is. Anyone who has heard of intelligent design has probably also heard that, shockingly, not everyone accepts it. And I'm not going to be talking about whether or not you should accept it. I am, however, going to be talking about some of the kinds, or at least one kind, of arguments that people bring against intelligent design. So let's launch into that now. A fellow by the name of Mano Singham articulates precisely the kind of arguments that I'm talking about when he says this. In an opinion piece, or at least I gather that's what it is, called Philosophy is Essential to the Intelligent Design Debate, he says, and I quote, ID, that's a common abbreviation for intelligent design, ID advocates claim that Empirical science consists of those disciplines in which the merits of competing theories can be evaluated by running controlled experiments to test them. However, ID advocates also claim that origins science, like evolution of life or the cosmos, cannot be investigated empirically because the experiment cannot be run again with controlled initial conditions. Hence, they propose as an alternative methodology for evaluating origins science that all competing hypotheses be applied to see which one gives the best explanation they further assert that the only sound hypotheses for the evolu- evolution of life are natural selection or id and that since natural selection fails on certain situations in certain situations referred to as irreducible complexity sorry, irreducibly complex systems, then, by the rules of falsifiability, ID must be the correct theory. This argument has four flaws, Mr. Singham says. First, although the tools of analysis may be different for so-called origin science and empirical science, consisting mainly of observations for origin science and experiments for empirical science, the ways in which competing theories are evaluated are the same for the two cases. Second, it is never the case that only two explanations exist for any scientific phenomenon. So he thinks that maybe there's another alternative than unguided natural selection and something intelligently guided. What he thinks that is, he doesn't quite say. But he does say, scientists are creative people. They can generate plausible alternative explanations with little effort. Third, ID theory does not satisfy the criteria to be considered part of science. Fourth, although he actually doesn't stop at point three to explain why that's the case. Fourth, falsifiability is not the rule by which scientific theories are evaluated. Try to tell that to the mid-20th century positivists. He goes on. Although research in the history and philosophy of science convincingly demonstrates that there are no simple and unambiguous methodological rules for deciding which of two or more competing theories are better, theories must meet two criteria if they are to be seriously considered at all. The first criterion is that any scientific theory must be naturalistic. No serious scientific theory in modern times has invoked explanations that appeal to inscrutability or the miraculous. As the paleontologist George Gaylord Gaylord Simpson put it, The progress of knowledge rigidly requires that no non-physical postulate ever be admitted in connection with the study of physical phenomena. We do not know what is and what is not explicable in physical terms, and the researcher who is seeking explanations must seek physical explanations only. The second criterion is that the theory must be predictive. No scientific theory is ever just an explication of the currently inexplicable. It must also postulate some mechanism that can be used to predict new phenomena that could not have been conceived under older theories. If a new theory is used to explain result A in situation A, then that same mechanism must be able to predict result B in situation B, predict C in situation C, and so on. This feature of producing new and interesting areas of exploration attracts adherence to a new theory, enabling it to become a serious competitor to the existing dominant theory. It is a theory's predictive aspect that leads to new and important discoveries. These two criteria comprise necessary but insufficient conditions for a theory to be considered part of science. I.D. fails to satisfy either criterion, and that alone is reason enough for its exclusion. End of rather long quote. Mr. Singham, incidentally, is a member of Ohio's Science Advisory Board, which drafted the guidelines for the state's science standards, which basically means he has a large say, or at least a partial say, in what is and is not permissible permissible, to be taught in schools. Now he's not al- alone in this outlook, as Mr. Singham. Just recently, Dr. Greg Dawes obtained a PhD in philosophy at the University of Otago. Incidentally, that's Dawes with a W, not doors. If you're an American, if you're an American, you'd say Dawes, D-A-W-E-S. Obtained a PhD in philosophy at uh, my university, where I graduated, the University of Otago on the basis of a thesis claiming that religious, i.e. non-naturalistic, explanations of anything simply cannot be explanations. This episode is not going to argue that the claims made by proponents of intelligent design are correct or incorrect. That would be to delve into the biological sciences, and quite frankly, I am hopelessly unqualified to do that. This episode is more about philosophy, and I'll say right at the start that many of the critics of intelligent design, like Mano Singham, should take the same approach that I'm taking. Not that they're ignorant of scientific facts, maybe they're, they're quite well informed of scientific facts, but rather they make major philosophical claims on the basis of their knowledge of the physical sciences, which is about as sensible as me presuming to be a biologist because I have a PhD in philosophy. You'd laugh at me if I said that. Now, having in that comment more or less given away my position, let's look more closely at the claims in question today. The first claim that Mano Singer made in that lengthy quote that I gave is that no theory is acceptable unless it is naturalistic. The second claim is that no theory is acceptable unless it makes predictions about the future that will turn out to yield new information. Notice, these are not claims about evidence and they are not claims that could be assessed by examining evidence. They are philosophical claims about what is necessary to satisfy the conceptual conditions of being a theory that we should take seriously, or being a theory that's really scientific. So let's look at the first claim, claim number one. No theory is acceptable unless it is naturalistic. Um, Now you might want to ask, initially, acceptable for what? Acceptable to be believed at all? Acceptable to be taught in schools? Acceptable to whom? So I'm going to start off with a very strong version of the claim, see if that's true, and then move to a softer version of the claim and see if that's true. The strong claim is this. No theory is true unless it is naturalistic. Okay? If the opponents of intelligent design came right out and said this, or at least those who actually believed this actually came out and said it, they would really be showing their hand. Because what this claim really amounts to is that atheism is true, or more properly stated philosophical naturalism is just true. The physical universe is all that exists, and any claim at odds with this is false. So effectively it writes the rules of debate as follows. Sure, let's debate the issue, You, the theist, and me, the naturalist. But bear in mind, if you argue for a theory that is at odds with what I now believe, you are wrong, for those are the rules. Now, that dogmatic objection to intelligent design is not open to investigation. It doesn't allow anyone to investigate the possibility that non-naturalistic claims might be correct. And so it's not a scientific approach. Whatever theories might be classified as scientific, all of them are at least capable of being investigated somehow. So, let's throw away that strong version of the objection as unacceptable. Let's tone the objection down. Let's make it something softer like this. Theories or attempts at explanation that do not presuppose naturalism do not really offer explanations, even though there may be such things as theological truths. So they're not ruling out the possibility of theological truths, but theological and non-naturalistic theories don't really explain things. All right, so there's a pretty clear claim about explanations. Let's use an example to see if it's acceptable, shall we? Let's use the clang made by some religious people, namely Christians, that the best explanation for the facts that many skeptics and Christians agree on surrounding the death of Jesus Christ and subsequent events is the theory that God raised Jesus from the dead. So there's a theological explanation being offered for a given set of circumstances. Now what exactly is wrong with the explanation? Now, one thing that might be wrong with it is that it might be false. You might just think that some other explanation is true. Okay, fine, but that's not quite the issue here. The claim that I'm looking at is that this theological explanation isn't even an explanation. But saying that has a pretty weird consequence. It would mean that even if God did raise Jesus from the dead... This is still not really the explanation for things like the empty tomb, the post resurrection appearance of Jesus, or the changed lives of his followers. But even if you're skeptical of the resurrection, you should see right away that that claim's kind of crazy. If God really did raise Jesus from the dead, then of course that explains those circumstances. This claim means that even true accounts, of why things happened aren't really explanations just if they involve God. But why on earth not? Why can't we just say that any true account of why things happened is a real explanation? Put another way, if we just stipulate that the only true accounts of things or events that really count as explanations, or perhaps which count as science, are things that are naturalistic, then what exactly is the value of something being science? When we say that something doesn't count as an explanation or doesn't really count as science, we clearly seem to be saying something bad about it. And therein lies the rhetorical value in saying it. We reject somebody's opinion going, "Oh, come on, that's just not scientific. So we're saying that means it's bad in some way. But if it turns out that all we really mean to say is that an account of something isn't naturalistic, Then we're we're kind of just crossing our fingers and hoping that our audience will equate science with naturalism and naturalism with the only truth out there. Because as we all know, theological claims are bunk, right? But maybe there could be more to the objection, and let's hope there is. I mean, such naked bias is kind of um, discrediting to someone's objection, I would think. Maybe the objective will say, no, no, look, I'm not saying that all religious claims are bunk. I'm not. Quite that bigoted. Maybe it's true that Jesus' tomb was empty because God raised him from the dead, but that's not an explanation of the facts because it doesn't reveal to us in a blow by blow manner what exactly took place. We don't know what the molecules of Jesus' body were doing. We don't have an account of how an immaterial God uses his power to interact with the physical world and all that, so we don't have a full description of all the quote-unquote natural circumstances. Okay, well what happens if we say this? Well, if we say this, then all we have is an argument about the gaps. Maybe it's true that we don't have all of the above, but we don't need all of the above to propose the explanation that the supernatural intellect has been involved. If the objector insists that this isn't good enough and no explanation will ever be adequate until natural facts fill in all the gaps, then what this objection really boils down to is this. Non-natural explanations do not offer full naturalistic accounts. <laughs> Big whoop-de-doo. Once we realize that this is all there is to the objection, then... It's true, but it's no longer an objection. It just means that theological explanations are ultimate explanations and not exhaustive descriptions. But this is fine. Proponents of I.D. can quite happily live with this. I.D., after all, is the view that naturalistic accounts alone are not enough. But surely a theory that naturalistic accounts fail for reasons X, Y, and Z is still a claim that yields the conclusion that intelligence is involved in how life arose. It's entirely possible, therefore, that critics of ID are attacking it because it fails to be something that it never set out to be in the first place, namely, a full naturalistic account of how events unfolded. But what of the second claim made by Mr. Singham? No theory is acceptable unless it makes predictions about the future that will turn out to yield new information. Is that a good criteria for something to count as an acceptable theory? In simple terms, I think that this ad hoc rule has simply been spun out of thin air. as a fabrication. The fact is, the scientific community knows full well that there are scientific theories taken seriously by many serious scientists that do not do this. Just one example. Take the theory of special relativity there are not one but two ways of looking at the theory the view of Einstein and the view of Lorentz now I'm not gonna try and bore you to tears with the physics of it partly because it would be boring and partly because I'm no physicist by any stretch of the imagination so I'll very quickly summarize the difference in the Einsteinian theory there is no absolute now in the world what is now is relative to different observers or vantage points in motion. In a Lorentzian theory, there really is an absolute now in the world, but we just can't be sure which events are happening in that now because motion affects our measuring instruments. Okay, Both of these theories cannot be true. They contradict each other. Neither of them can be given greater approval over the other on the basis of empirical evidence, because the empirical evidence is equally compatible with either view, or predictive power, for that matter. Yet both of these are scientific theories. There are other aspects of Einstein's and Lorentz's work that might be evaluated in this way, by looking at the empirical evidence and the predictive power, but not this aspect of their work, not their theories of time here. So this rule about predictive power doesn't hold. It's just being invented to block consideration of intelligent design. It's a pseudo, pseudo objection, a false objection that is not applied consistently to the sciences. It's just, for some reason, raised as an objection to intelligent design. Maybe intelligent design needs a special objection because we've got to keep it out somehow. What's more, however, is that intelligent design has just as much predictive power as numerous other potential theories that have to do with the scientific study of the past. Take, for example, the theory that ducks, ordinary-sized and ordinary, ordinarily intelligent ducks of the kind that we see in our ponds today, did not build the Great Pyramids of Egypt. Now, you might wonder what type of scientist would put forth a theory like that, but I'd ask what type of scientist wouldn't endorse a theory like that. It's kind of obviously true, isn't it? The theory would be based on the claim that ducks simply lack the resources to perform great feats like building pyramids. We can see ducks, we know the strength of their various body parts and so forth. They couldn't lift blocks of stone that weigh tons. There's nothing about this claim that has any predictive power. It's not going to lead to any new information. It's entirely based on existing information and won't lead to any more. Except possibly for the fact that once we've digested the theory, and maybe some of the ducks, we might then propose new ones like ducks didn't carve the stone heads on Easter Island, they didn't erect Stonehenge, and so forth. Intelligent design is a bit like that. The claim that random mutations and incremental change and so forth... Whoops. (laughs) I won't bother editing that out in post-production. It's late. ...lack the resources to create irreducibly complex systems. This has no more or less predictive power than the theory about ducks, and it seems equally theory-like. The only reason to object to it as with the duck example, is to say that the claims that it makes are not true. Now, fine, if you think they're not true, then you go right ahead and say so. You know, give reasons and argue with people who think these claims are true. But there's no fault here for lack of predictive power. Intelligent design doesn't need predictive power any more than other theories, like theories about ducks. I'll stop there, because I've I've basically made the points that I want to make. I'll just sum up. If you think that intelligent design is not true, okay, say it's not true, argue against it. But when people responsible for making decisions about what theories are acceptable to come to the discussion or not, to be discussed in institutions of learning, it is a cause for serious concern when those same people really show their hand, I think, by trying to rewrite the rules about what kind of theory are even welcome. What kinds of theory? What kind of theories? What kinds of theory are even welcome? Yes, it's a bit like the abortion issue, where people argue, well, abortion should be legal because it's not murder, and it's not murder because the law defines a law defines murder, and abortion's not it. It's kind of an empty, shallow way to to you know, attack pro-lifers. Talk about the issue, not the rules surrounding the issue. Okay, so if you think abortion is okay then say, look, there's nothing morally objectionable about abortion and argue you know actually tackle the meat of it. Or in this case say intelligent design is wrong because it makes claims about the facts that are not true. That's an acceptable way to reason about this. Don't say As a rule maker I won't allow intelligent design to come and take part in the debate because the rules that I have made exclude it, so that I don't even have to get around to talking about whether intelligent design Has the facts right? Be a, a scientist if you want, but don't be a bureaucrat about it. Argue about the science. Put another way, scientists know your place. I like saying that. Go right ahead and debate the science. But don't pretend that your teaching diploma and your interest in evolution and your science degree somehow make you a philosopher. It's that time again where we look at what transpired on This Week in History. It's the week from 21st to 27th of September, and here we go. Beginning on September the 21st, 1522, the very first ever edition of Martin Luther's German translation of the New Testament is published. September 21, 1525, the first ever Anabaptist baptismal service took place in Zurich, Switzerland. September 22, 1692. The last person was hanged for witchcraft in the Salem Witch Trials in Salem, Massachusetts. Most momentous news this time round. September 24, 1936. Well, it's not really news, I guess it's old news now. Jim Henson was born. The Muppet Show, Sesame Street, Labyrinth, The Dark Crystal, The Storyteller along with the brilliant Jim Henson Creature Shop and other things besides, if you are part of my generation, or older, or younger for that matter, but definitely if you're part of my generation, Jim Henson probably played a very happy role in your childhood, as he did in mine. And in less important news for the 24th of September in 1757, Jonathan Edwards Some people would say America's most brilliant theologian and a father of American revivalism becomes the president of the College of New Jersey, later to become Princeton, and then later again to be abandoned by conservatives uh, when Westminster Theological Seminary was founded incidentally by J. Gresham Mackin. Was it Machen? I'm never sure how it should be pronounced. Jonathan Edwards served as president there until his death in 1758. September 25, 1789, Congress amends the U.S. Constitution to prohibit establishment of a state, church, or governmental interference with the free exercise of religion, one of the most abused principles in history. September 27, 2004, John E. Mack, the Harvard psychiatrist, who used his position to promote belief in alien abductions, died when he was hit by a car in London. They got to him. A 14-month-long investigation into his research was conducted by Harvard, but he was not censured on the grounds that his academic freedom permitted him to encourage quackery. Fair enough. Oxford has Richard Dawkins. These guys are allowed their fellow who talks about alien Abductions And on that note, we draw to a close of another episode of Say Hello to My Little Friend. Please do come back next time. I'm lonely. I will see you then. Until then, goodbye from...
1: Say hello to my little friend!